The idea of walking in the steps of Abraham is a fairly well-known concept to the Christian churches. You'll recall the statement is out of Romans chapter 4 in the 12th verse. That idea is available to us as we enter in afresh on these studies entitled Joining Joseph's Journey. And you see that there is precedent for an idea along these lines, as already stated. We are called by the Apostle Paul, we are called by the Word of God to walk in the steps of the faith of the progenitor, Abraham, the patriarch, Abraham. In other words, if we were ministering on the life of Abraham, we could speak about adopting Abraham's actions. Or, stated more simply, we could just speak about joining Abraham's journey. And it is true that in some respects, these studies do intersect with that idea. Indeed, we will be developing the pertinence of Abraham's life to the project that we're engaged in further today. But I want to reflect on that statement at the outset of this study. It's familiar, as I've already said, to Christian ears, walk in the steps of Abraham. But you see, what precisely that should look like is the critical question, isn't it? You know, one of the earmarks, one of the indications of an encroaching Laodiceanism is when biblical statements turn into cliches, when it matters little to our hearts in any sort of functional way, what the phrases we're repeating and thinking about and perhaps even preaching or hearing preached actually mean. And I'm not suggesting that that's true of anyone gathered in this place today, but it is something worth reflecting on. Because if we can use a biblical phrase right out of the book of Romans, which speaks of an idea of knowing what a particular patriarch's life was like in order to walk <clears throat> in those steps, and yet we don't really have much detail with which to explain to ourselves or to others what that would look like, if the phrase is just something that we bandy about, walking in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, but we haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to draw us into the deeper implications of what that should mean for us today in our context, then I would suggest to you that that alone is an indication of some insipid Laodiceanism. What if I told you that Joseph's journey is an excellent example of walking in the steps of Abraham. What if I told you that in many respects, Joseph's journey is a fulfillment of the steps that were initiated in Abraham? What if I even told you that in some respects, Joseph's journey, the steps that Joseph walked in, fulfilled aspects of that which Abraham was called upon to walk in that he himself never reached and perhaps he himself failed to fulfill. 
that Joseph fulfills some of the steps that Abraham was called to walk in and did not reach or did not faithfully fulfill. And perhaps Isaac as well did not reach or faithfully fulfill. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, did not reach or did not faithfully fulfill. I would suggest to you that that kind of reflection is very important when it comes to understanding the life of Joseph, understanding what the admonition is from the life of Joseph to a New Testament believer. I will just suggest to you again that over our lives is a call to make sure that certainly we are walking in the steps of Jesus Christ. That also is a statement that is available to us. Peter tells us that Jesus left us an example that we should walk in His steps. But exactly what that should look like, dear brothers and sisters, is also a critical question. And we have a great deal of assistance toward understanding what that should mean through the apostolic writings, through, in many respects, the record of the apostolic church in the historical piece that is provided for us in the canon of Scripture called the Acts of the Apostles. And so... What I'm saying to you is Jude can appeal to something, as you will well remember in the third verse of his epistle, when he says, it is for every new generation of believers to earnestly contend, to be jealous about, to be serious about, contending for the faith that was once for all delivered over to the saints, once for all entrusted, dear brothers and sisters, into the care of the confessing Christian church. And so you'll recognize with me that we have a responsibility not only to gather and worship our Lord Jesus, not only to benefit from His saving grace, not only to find within the context of Christian life and teaching a better morality and a greater stability in the living out of life, that comes through God's holy word. But we have a responsibility, dear brothers and sisters, to protect that deposit by living out that deposit, by manifesting its meaning to those who would engage themselves with our lives. In other words, brothers and sisters, we are to be walking in the steps of the faith that the Christian patriarchs, that is to say the early church, walked in themselves. Now, I suppose that that is, once again, a fairly common remark. It, in some respects, defines what we're about every time we gather. We aren't among those that add extra-biblical books to the 66 books that comprise the canon of uh, our Bibles. And so, we're always going back to a record that precedes us, that is established, that was finalized in the first century. But though these sorts of ideas are very obvious, or I should say very common, I still challenge my heart and your heart with this question. Are they more than cliches? To what degree are these fresh visions in our hearts? It's my burden through these studies to address your lives and all who hear these studies with that question. To what degree are you serious about seeing 
the patriarchal vision that was given through the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and, of course, through Jesus most centrally and anointed by the Holy Spirit, to what degree are we serious about understanding, first of all, what that original vision was, what that faith that was once for all delivered over the saints is, and not just hearing about it, not just saying that, of course, we are a church that believes the Bible is inspired and we believe, you know, we believe the entire revelation from Genesis to Revelation, but, but dear brothers and sisters, that we are thoughtful from week to week and during the week and we are thoughtful in terms of my pastoring and in terms of our Bible studies and in terms of our intercessions and prayers. We are thoughtful about making sure that we are activating, we are living within this vision, that this vision has our attention, it has our emotions, it has our dedication. Well, that's what it is to join Joseph's journey from a New Testament standing. I'll remind you, of course, of what we've already stated out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, that the Old Testament historical record is at least in part canonized. It is settled. It becomes a rule by which to measure our lives. And we measure or we engage with these Old Testament stories certainly with a New Testament understanding, with a new wineskin within which this ancient uh, vintage finds its reservoir within our hearts. And so don't be surprised as we investigate Joseph's life in the context that surrounds him, if we acknowledge or if we point out, if we observe certain things that are deeper understandings, they are not mystical, they are not allegorical, they are not eisegetical, they're not reading into the text, but they're understanding the unfolding of this story with the greater light of Jesus Christ in New Testament revelation. So I do hope that you will understand that hermeneutic approach. It is the proper approach. It's only just a study of perhaps one might say a sort of Gerhard Vossian biblical theological project, which is fine on its own feet, and I highly recommend that sort of uh, study as a matter of fact. But when you're simply trying to understand Joseph's story only as it relates to him and the level of moral understanding and light and revelation that he, we would imagine, you know, we would be assuming that he walked in and those around him walked in. If that's all we're doing, then we're just we're just having a study about that, and that's maybe a good launching point, but that's not what we're doing, brothers and sisters. I hope you're understanding me, and I'm not talking over your heads. I'll be actually doing this sort of thing through these studies. So I'm trying to, in a preface sort of way, let you know ahead of time if I make some remarks out of the book of Genesis and you say to yourself, I didn't really see it that way before. I would recommend that you reflect on that because... As a New Testament believer, we should see some deeper truths that should be in place from the beginning, but they were not always so. But Jesus calls us back to that which should have been right from the beginning. So I would, have, I would say to you that if it is advisable, as Paul says, for us to walk in the steps of Abraham, then it is arguable, given the fact that Joseph fulfills that very calling 
that we should join Joseph's journey. In order to join Joseph's journey, we need to understand the patriarchal framework within which his life emerges. This, as you know, is the particular focus that these studies are engaged with at this time. We will be returning back to Genesis chapter 12, which is where we left off in our previous study. I'm reminding you that this is critical because Joseph finds his place in the midst of a story that started before him. And you have to know the state of affairs of that very story. How is that story going? What does it look like? The various players within that story, what are they doing? This is absolutely critical to understanding Joseph's life. In Genesis chapter 12, read with me, if you would, the first three verses. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, in a similar way to, Rev to Romans chapter 4 and verse 12, is a text that is quite common to Christian ears, and the risk is that it becomes something of a cliché. But it is indeed a very important and central text to understanding your Bible well. As a matter of fact, a particular British Old Testament scholar by the name of Robert Moberly had this to say about the verses we just read. The intrinsic significance of this passage is not in doubt. For its context makes it a bridge between God's dealings with the world in general, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, and his dealings with the patriarchs in particular, Genesis 12 through Genesis chapter 50. Those verses that we have just read, the verses that are the are the call of Abraham out of Ur of Chaldee that we are going to look at with a little bit more microscopic detail. This is a very pivotal point in the biblical record. The question before the Bible reader, the question that is looming in history, uh, brothers and sisters, is, is there going to be a seed? That's the question. And if you're thinking broadly over the landscape of the book of Genesis, you'll remember that in response to the fall of humanity and Adam and Eve, God promises that salvation will come through a seed. And prior to reaching chapter 12, dear brothers and sisters, the project, as it were, 
is more or less indiscriminately available to the population at large, to the nations at large. God deals with the nations at large. Indeed, in Genesis chapter 10, we have what is known as the table of the nations. This, of course, is in a post-Diluvian uh, situation, so we could go back and tell the story up to Genesis chapter 6, but you would know that thus far, the project hasn't worked very well, has it? So God preserves Noah and eight other souls. Will the seed come out of this family is perhaps the question that we should be thinking about. But as we follow the post-Diluvian period and the development of the people within that time frame, we eventually get to Genesis chapter 10, and we see that there are multitudes and multitudes of people now spread out throughout the earth, and they constitute the population of the world. But we are given, in essence, what the status of affairs is with the population at large in Genesis chapter 11. And at the Tower of Babel, we discover that the population is not going along with God's program. And therefore, the prospects of redemption are dying. They are essentially on the skids, as it were. And I hope that you can appreciate with me that whenever God turns to Abram in Ur of the Chaldee, he is beginning to very graciously respond to this problem, and he himself is now going to choose a seed through whom to forward the project of redemption. Will there be a seed? You remember that Paul makes the point in Galatians chapter 3, and he emphasizes that God never said that there would be seeds. Redemption won't come through seeds, it will come through a seed. And when you start to reflect upon this, you realize that if God cannot find a people with whom to work, if God cannot find a people, then perhaps he can find a son. Perhaps he can find a seed without abandoning his project to reach the nations with mercy, grace, and love. Can God find someone through whom all the nations will be blessed? So you see, as Moberly points out, the intrinsic significance of this passage is not in doubt. This is the bridge that moves God's program from its sort of non-focused, ubiquitous standing where it's just generally sort of working within the populations. Of course, God knows that it's not going to work well under those conditions, but He is revealing His heart to us. He is ultimately, of course, bringing us to His Son, the Lord Jesus. And it is a principle that we must observe in our own Christian walk. And I am bringing this to your attention again because you will see how this fits with Abraham, but more importantly, I want you to see how it fits with Joseph. Because therein is a lesson for 
ourselves. I would put it to you this way, just as a sort of foreshadowing. If at any time the project of God isn't working well with the people at large, with the available humanity that hears the message and has some sort of um, place within that message, if it isn't working out in them, then God will look for a son in whom to re-engage that project. He'll look for a man. He'll look for a woman. He'll look for someone in whom to concentrate His work and to concentrate His anointing and to bring His purposes forward. It doesn't always end up obviously in an individual like say in Elijah or a Jeremiah or a Paul for that matter because they did have contemporaries. Certainly there was an Elisha, there was a Baruch, and there was a Peter if you will. But if you're hearing the principle and as you'll see it play out in the life of Joseph, you'll see that this truth is real. That God, when He cannot find a group to work through, He looks for someone to work through. And that is exactly what is going on in Genesis chapter 12. You see, dear brothers and sisters, there will be no blessing brought to the nations under the present condition of things. That is obvious in Genesis chapter 11 and at the Tower of Babel. So God narrows the focus down. He chooses a single individual. Can He find a son in Abram through whom He will fulfill the project to bless all the nations? I hope that that aspect of what we're talking about is very important to you because God never chooses a single man to just sort of put him on the stage, as it were, to just show that this is a faithful man among all the unfaithful. No, God chooses a man or several individuals, uh, brothers and sisters, men, when He cannot reach with His Spirit the broader spectrum of people that are available, but He uses them to bless the nations like with Abraham. He calls Abraham out. He narrows down the focus. He shows us that the divine project is now going to be activated in Abraham and advanced through him. So we go through this phenomenon of exclusivity preceding inclusivity. A son must come before many sons can go to glory. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. It has an exclusive focus in order to achieve an inclusive future outcome. So you see, the idea of Joseph being the son that changes everything is only understood well when it is understood as a bittersweet reality. Why would I make that statement? Because, dear brothers and sisters, the project of narrowing down to a single individual had already been started in Abraham. Abraham was the narrowing down, God changing as it were. Now, he's not 
you know, changing his mind or trying plan B, but this is for our admonition. This is for our instruction. What he's showing you is if I left the project of the salvation of humanity to the nations at large, and I just sort of disperse my blessing out, it would be a mile wide and less than an inch thick. It would get you nowhere because no one responds as they ought to. In other words, the population typically doesn't respond to God in a sufficiently powerful way to bring the call of God and the project forward. So I'm suggesting to you that then God narrows everything down. He puts the nations aside and he chooses one individual by his grace out of Ur of the Chaldee, one single man to become the son that changes everything, to play a typical role of a fulfillment of a seed that will bring forward the redemptive purpose. And so if it is the case, as these studies are arguing, that Joseph ultimately plays the role of the son, the son, the son, that changes everything. I'm trying to stir your hearts up so that you will understand that is a bittersweet story. Because at the point of Joseph's life, at a minimum, we should be talking about the 12 sons that changed everything. Or even beyond just the 12 boys themselves, the broader tribe and the broader descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as you'll see with me, that is not where the story goes to when it gets to Abraham, to Joseph's life, some roughly 200 years after Abraham's selection. Well, in order to appreciate this then, why would this be the case? I hope that you're understanding what I'm saying. Why is it the case if Genesis 12 is such a pivotal moment in the program of God where he chooses a seed and he says, I'm going to enlarge your family. And I'm going to make your name great. And you are going to be a blessing to all the nations. I'm going to get very exclusive. I'm not going to deal with the other nations. I'm going to deal with you. But in order for you to fulfill the divine desire to bless all the nations. Dear brothers and sisters, how can it be then when we get to Joseph's life that he plays the role of a son that is changing everything, which he indeed does? It is because of the patriarchal story and the Laodiceanism that is evident in their lives. That is what we're wanting to make sure that you see so you can better appreciate Joseph's life. All one needs to do in order to begin to appreciate this is to look a little further in Genesis 12 and to keep reading within Genesis 12. I'll remind you for context at the very end of Genesis chapter 11, we are told that Abram and his wife and his father and his brother went forth from Ur of the Chaldee, 
to go into the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and they yasab. Or if you wish, you can say yasav, whether you want a bet or a vet. I know there's no dagesh in the bet there. I'm not going to get into Hebrew pronunciation. What we're told there is that they left Ur of the Chaldee, they went to Haran, and they dwelt there. That's the context with which the 12th chapter, excuse me, the 11th chapter of Genesis ends. Maybe it would be helpful for me to bring one other quotation to your ears. This is from the post-World War II German Old Testament scholar whom I don't follow on all things, but he does make this remark that I hope again is helping you to build this picture in your own minds. He says, the story about the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, concludes with God's judgment on mankind. There is no word of grace the whole primeval history, therefore, seems to break off in shrill dissonance, and the question we formulated above now arises even more urgently. Is God's relationship to the nations now finally broken? Is God's gracious forbearance now exhausted? Has God rejected the nations in wrath forever? It's a very profound hermeneutic observation that Genesis 11 ends with language that has no prospect of grace or hope for the nations. But Genesis, the, the story of the Tower of Babel, I'm saying, in Genesis 11, which is at the front end of it, we see that there is a man by the name of Terah who brings us to the 10th generation and within that family, there is a particular man, as is going to be emphasized in Genesis 12, that is chosen, a single individual. The nations are scattered. The nations are under God's judgment. You remember with me at the Tower of Babel. Remember Nimrod and all the rest of it. God chooses a single individual. Has he given up on the nations? The reality is, is no. But he goes to a project of exclusivity in order to get to inclusivity. That's why, incidentally, the value of Christian separation must not ever be lost sight of. Not so that we can be separate as a objective all on its own, but you must observe separation and the kind of exclusivity that allows God to get our attention and to speak to our hearts so that then through us, He can bless the nations. Excl exclusivity. God has showed us in the wisdom of uh, His eternal counsels must precede inclusivity. And of course, that is ultimately manifest in its most brilliant light through Jesus Christ. He is the Son that is critical. He is the beloved, exclusive, unique Son through whom many sons are brought to glory through whom all the nations, every kindred and tongue, is brought to glory. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I want you to see with me that there is a truth to the fact that in earnest, God is making this project available in Abraham. That is to say, He is, he is working toward Christ, but Abraham is called to walk in um, that type of calling. He's a type of Christ in that sense. Does, is that understood for all of us? Do you appreciate how real that is, that it's not um, 
a good way of thinking about your Bible or your own life for that matter to say, well, we know that ultimately Jesus became the son that changes everything. Because while that is true, it's only true because the rest of us have failed. It's because Abram failed. And this is what we're going to be looking at. I mean, he's a wonderful example in most respects, and we need to follow in his steps. But so was Moses, and so was Peter, but these men failed. And what I'm saying to you, uh, sort of to make sure that these are not just talks about the Bible, but you're hearing spiritual application, what I'm saying to you is, yes, it's true that Jesus has already walked victoriously. And it's true also that none of us will walk as victoriously as he. If the project of redemption was left on my shoulders, it would not be successful. But nonetheless, like Abram, I still have a very real calling to be a son that changes everything, to not worry about how exclusive my experience is as long as I'm being faithful, because there are times when God has to narrow the focus down from the population at large. He sort of narrows Christian, Christendom down from, from the seven churches of Asia Minor. He sort of not puts off to the side, but he certainly narrows, as it were, his, his, his acclaim from the various churches in Asia Minor, and he puts it on Philadelphia, and he puts it on Smyrna. You see what I'm saying? And he's saying, now there's a couple of churches that are that are in keeping with the deposit that was once for all delivered over the saints. Even in Ephesus, you need to repent. You left, you've left your first love. And Thyatira, you have a woman that calls herself a prophetess, but she really has the spirit of Jezebel. And some of you others, you have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and Laodicea. Well, we won't even talk about you right now in this study, but you see what I'm saying? Because things have begun to creep in to the, the popular religion then God narrowed it back down to an individual. It isn't that the story through Luther? Isn't that the story in some sense through Wesley? Isn't that the story that is told over and over again in some respects? That's what we're talking about here, brothers and sisters. That's what these studies are all about. It's all about joining Joseph's journey. It's about realizing that Abram is this pivotal point in the Bible. And he is the son that is supposed to change everything. And I'm not saying that he wasn't successful in, in, in the most glorious respects as it relates to a human being. But I am wanting you to see that as the generations go on post-Abraham, it doesn't quite stay up to the original calling. It begins to slow down. It begins to change its disposition within the land that they're supposed to be pilgrims and strangers. They begin to settle down and so forth. Well, I don't want to just make these remarks. I want to manifest them to you in the Word of God. So, we already read, did we not, from Genesis 12. We read, and I emphasized this in the last study, so I won't redo this, but in your King James Bible, as well as in the Septuagint of the 3rd century B.C., we have it emphasized, the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out. Does everybody understand why that's so important? It's important because I realize this is after Tira's death. 
And there are some commentators, I've read this so often that I'm a little bit tired of it, but I don't want to sound like I have an attitude. I just don't think they're understanding how the text is working. They say that Terah was a worshiper of idols and he couldn't go to the land of Canaan. Well, I would say to you, what relevance is that? Look what we read right here. He isn't talking to Terah. Terah's dead in Genesis 12. He's talking to Abram. The Lord had said, get you out of your country and from your kindred. So if his father was an idolater, if that's the way we're going to read the story, to argue that Abram was fully obedient by going with his father to Haran and parking, I think is not to read the text well. Remember in Genesis 11, they left Ur of Chaldee to go to the land of Canaan. But they didn't do it, did they? It's like we began church to obey the Bible, but you're not doing it, perhaps. And so you're not a son, you're not a church that God is going to use to change everything. So what I'm saying to you is that this statement, God had said, is really important for our ears, especially as New Testament hearers. It's fine with me to understand that Abram is still an example for us. So is Peter. But when Jesus says, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Whenever Peter walked on the water, you know what I'm trying to say? We still need to learn from that, brothers and sisters. And when the scriptures say, the Lord had said to Abram. In other words, just to make sure no one's not getting this, he isn't saying for the first time after his father dies in Haran, hey, Abram, this is the first time this idea is ever going to come to your ears. Why don't you leave Haran? Don't go back to Ur of the Chaldee. Abram, how about this? Why don't you leave Haran and join my project and I'm going to bring you to a land that you don't know about. Later we'll all learn it's the land of Canaan. And then if you will leave your country and your kindred in your father's house and I will make you a great nation, I will bless thee. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing to all the nations. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. May I ask you a question? Do the families of the earth really need to be blessed in Abram's day? Then why are they parked in Haran? Does the culture around us, dear brothers and sisters, really need the light of Jesus Christ? Really need the blessing of God? Then to join Joseph's journey is to have the heart that looks back and says, why? Well, you know, I know what the original calling was, and it may be that some of the sons of the apostles and uh, preachers over the years have settled down and changed the project a little bit here and there, but uh, it's got to be reinvigorated in my heart. I've got to get that vision from the Lord because we need to change things around here. You say to yourself, as Joseph would say, I'm not an original but I've got a dream, I've got a vision, I want to tell my brothers about it. They might laugh or feel jealous or otherwise oppose, but brothers and sisters, that's what it is to join Joseph's journey. This is not altogether that complicated, but still I want you to see how richly 
It is placed within the Bible, and there are many lessons to learn. This actually, it might surprise you to hear me say this, this is really just an overview of the, the context that Joseph, Joseph's life emerges into. We will ultimately look at several lessons and, you know, take them up in a more sort of detailed fashion. Let's read verse 4. Verse 4, very importantly. This is right after, you know, this pivotal verse where God narrows the focus down to one man. Now that one man actually in some way or another had not obeyed Yahweh. I think that is most likely because he had told him, leave your kindred, and they didn't. I could give you many verses that, from a New Testament perspective, tell you that when Jesus says, come follow me, and you turn around and you say, let me first go bury my father, he will say to you, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. And somewhere we have to reflect on, well, how does that principle in general apply to us? It's a principle. It's a spiritual orientation. It's a way of alerting your heart to how, you know, how serious the Christian walk is supposed to be. In verse 4 we read, So Abram departed. That Hebrew word means to die, vanish, or depart. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. Hmm. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed. Yasa means to come out, to proceed out of Haran. Now, I mentioned Hebrews 11 verse 8 in our last study, and we are told there that by faith, Abram, when he was called to go out into a place that he should afterward receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out. He obeyed when he went out. He wasn't obeying before he went out. And I don't think you can say going from Ur of the Chaldee to Haran and parking is where we should be seeing the obedience. The obedience is after God finally gets a hold of his heart after his father is dead, and he says, I've already told you, Abram, to leave. And it's so important to see these verbs, the verb that is used, the first one, so Abram died, vanished. That is to say, you can see this as he, he died to Haran. He died to the things that may have been tying him to other commitments. You don't think that can be real? Do you remember Lot's wife? Do you remember Matthew chapter 8? And I just referred to one part of it. There may be a number of things we have to die to in order to go forward in God's program. And sometimes you move, you know, 400 feet, and then you begin to park and you think, oh, well, I'm really obeying the Lord. But you're not obeying the Lord unless you're doing all that He has told you to do. And God is merciful, you know. Sometimes He'll let some of those things that are holding you back just die. And then He'll come back to you and say, Now I told you, and I meant it. Go all the way to Canaan. 
or go all the way to a place you don't even know where I'm, I'm going to bring you. But it's important to see that Abram does obey and these verbs that are used as contrasted with the verbs that we will see throughout this study are, are depicting this vigor with which Abram now enters into the divine calling. He dies to Haran, he comes out, Yassar, of Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance. Now, I don't know if that's a problem, but it might be. And I will be reminding you of what we're reading here when we look at some things in the future, when we look at the story at a later time in the book of Genesis, so that you can see with me that there's a reason why I say, I'm not sure that they should have done that. They should have packed all their bags and packed the station wagon up till you couldn't even hardly fit anybody in. You know, make sure you get every last thing. Pack up all your substance from whatever we took out of Ur of the Chaldee and whatever we gained in Haran. And by the way, Lot, you go ahead. You come along too. I know God said, let's leave your kindred. But Lot, no, you come along too. Is it wrong? I, I'm not saying it is. But I'm saying from a New Testament perspective, these are the things you need to think about. Because as the story goes forward, you're going to see that some of these features play roles within the story that slows down the project and diverts it or complicates it when had one walked differently, it would not have gone that way. So they depart with all their substance and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, in other words, slaves, and they went, it could be children too, but I would say it's primarily, primarily slaves, and they went to go forth into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Now, I like that. That sounds so sweet. You know what I mean? God called the church to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and onto the uttermost parts of the world and and into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, they went. That actually is not the case. It's not the case. Originally, they hung around Jerusalem. God multiplied the church within Jerusalem. And everything was wonderful, but they weren't spreading. You know what it began to develop? Well, in Acts chapter Five, we have Ananias and Sapphira. A couple of church members began to settle down within the Christian experience and decided lying is permissible, at least at some level. In Acts chapter 6, they start murmuring and complaining about the distribution of food. And so we learn later in, I believe, Acts chapter 8, that God allowed a great persecution. And we're told specifically, all the Christians in Jerusalem were scattered. They became pilgrims, strangers, scattered. Now into Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the world. They were all scattered except the apostles and went out preaching the gospel. But here we're told that he went out of Haran and he came into Canaan and Abram passed through the land, onto the place of Shechem, onto the plain of Morah. 
And the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. He did not build a tower to reach unto heaven. He did not build a city and name it after himself. Abram built an altar. This relatively rough structure that just marks in a sort of transient manner that I met with God here and that God met with me. And now I'm going to continue to move on and to let the Lord lead me a little further. Do you understand what I'm saying? We sing the song, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the mark. That's what we're talking about here, dear brothers and sisters. We have a high calling. We have to forget the things that are behind, not just the sins. That's something that we need to comfort our hearts. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? So that then we can walk in the light as He is in the light and go even further toward the light, brothers and sisters. And what I'm trying to say is that you just need to make altars to the Lord, you know? And, and like, not park there. You need to say, well, thank you, Lord, you saved me here at Bethel. Or thank you, Lord, that you gave me the baptism of the Holy Spirit here in Hebron. Or thank you, Lord, that you healed me, oh, Lord, over here in Shechem. Or thank you, Lord, that uh, you brought me into a deeper understanding of your word over here in, uh, you know, Bethlehem or whatever. But you got to keep moving, brothers and sisters. you got to keep moving. And so he builds this altar, and then we read, And he removed from thence onto a mountain on the east of Bethel. That's about 20 miles south of Shechem. You go another 20 miles south, and you're going to reach Jerusalem, what will ultimately be known as Jerusalem. And he pitched his tent. He didn't build a city. He pitched a tent. That's not insignificant, by the way. Remember Hebrews 11, again, when it speaks of Abram, he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in a land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of an eternal reward. You see, that even all the way back to Abraham's day, the call of God upon his sons and his daughters is to dwell with great mobility, to dwell as a stranger and a pilgrim, not to plant yourself too much in this world in terms of possession, in terms of family ties, in terms of making a name for yourself, in terms of career, in terms of business. This is not how you can do the Christian life. Joining Joseph's journey is all about reinvigorating that original vision that we're seeing now played out in Abraham well when he does actually obey God and he goes out and he dies to those things that are holding him, that God is saying, break off those things and come into my calling, but he is resisting it for various seemingly logical reasons. You know, my dad, or my mom, or my child, or my business, or my new wife, or, or uh, my new plot of land, or whatever. 
And Jesus says, if you put your hand to the plow and then start to look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. This may not be the standard with which most churches are living within, brothers and sisters, but, uh, but it is the standard of the Word of God. And it is the patriarchal call that we need some Josephs to catch that vision and, and to bring it to their brothers and sisters in our time and to say, you need to be about your father's business. I mean, this open question about whether you should even meet as a church should not even be discussed. You should know that being about your father's business is so patently obvious and keeping the, keeping the command to keep the Sabbath holy is a command from Almighty God who's told you to gather one in seven at a minimum, and you cannot abrogate God's law in deference to man's ideas. But I say to you, brothers and sisters, if you can just park at home, if you can sit before a computer screen, and I'm not criticizing people. That's not the point. I said before, it's not about grabbing people by the neck and pulling them, but you know, Joseph didn't argue with his brothers. He presented their dream. They didn't like it. They put him in a pit. They sold him out of his presence, but he never argued with them. You don't see any of them bloodied, do you? And yet he was thrown into a pit, but he didn't fight them, evidently. They had to tear the coat, we're told. That means when they went to take it off, he didn't resist them. Well, I can't cover all the implications of that if you think that that is, you know, irresponsible or, you know, making a point that doesn't exist. You know, I don't know. I can't cover that whole question of non-resistance and lack of belligerence. But, uh, you know, I'm earnest about the Word of God, brothers and sisters, but I, I strive not to be belligerent. It's not my disposition to be fighting people or, or to be nasty or to be judgmental. I just have a burden that, that we should have churches filled with Josephs that are, that are alive to the vision of God. That's why I say that if Joseph can be the son that changes everything, if Joseph can be the son that changes everything, which he is, which I'm manifesting to you, and, you know, I think you can see, but it'll become more and more established, it's a bittersweet story. Because there should be 12 sons that change everything. There should be 20, 30, 40 people. Whenever Jacob goes down into Egypt with, with 70 souls, we should, they should all be alive to the things of God. But they're not. How can that be? Why everybody who names the name of Jesus should, should be a true Christian indeed, but it's, it's not always the case. As a matter of fact, it might be that it's hard to find a man. I mean, I'm not saying it absolutely is. I know God has his 7,000 and sure a whole lot more than that as well. But, but dear brothers and sisters, these are seminal ideas that I think God wants to reach our hearts with. So we pitched the tent having Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar onto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram Nassah journeyed. Nassah means to uproot, cause to break away. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south, the Negev. Well, my dear brothers and sisters, we took a bit of time in our study this afternoon. I trust that the pace with which we're working is not um, tedious to your spirits. 
I'm trying with earnestness to make the case of how the story of the patriarchs is working, how that the project under Abraham is supposed to start something new and fresh by choosing one man. And through that one man, God is going to enlarge a family of believers. His sons and His children are to be brought into the covenant and God speaks to Isaac and to Jacob and renews the covenant to them, says it's available to you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you understand what's happening? Jesus is saying it's available to you to walk like my son, to walk like Paul, to walk like the best lives you ever read. Don't you understand that's available to you? But you have to get up. You have to move. You have to journey. You have to die to Haran. You have to get out there and live this word. In closing, for our study today, I'm just going to close by giving you some parallels between Abram or Abraham and his great-grandson, Joseph. You know, it's interesting. Abraham dies 76 years before Joseph was born. For a broader perspective, I'll relate to you that Isaac is 151 when Joseph is born. And he lives another 29 years after Joseph's birth, 12 of which are after Joseph is sold into slavery. Jacob was 91 when Joseph was born. He was 108 when Joseph was sold into slavery. As I said in the beginning of this study, approximately 200 years, 182 to be perhaps a little bit more accurate, but approximately 200 years transpire between Abram's second call, that's what I'm referring to in Genesis chapter 12, because the Lord had said, 200 years transpire between Abram's second call and Joseph's entrance into Egypt at 17. Why did Joseph enter into Egypt at 17? Because his brothers sold him into Egypt. You know, the brothers that are the sons, as it were, the grandsons, as it were, of Abram? In other words, the sons of Jacob, who's the son of Isaac? And Isaac is still around whenever Joseph is sold into Egypt. Here are some parallels. Abram. I will use the name Abraham. As you know, his name is ultimately changed to Abraham. Abraham is featured in the Tolada section of Terah as a son who is to change everything. He is the seed. He is a son. An individual that is to change everything. And it's manifest that way as we saw in last week's study. We See, these are the generations of Terah. And then we're told Abraham, who was not the first child to be born, by the way, from Terah. We won't get into all of that, but, but he, he is then featured. And Terah isn't featured. He isn't featured. The focus is brought to his son, Abram. Why? Because, as you know, I read some quotations from Old Testament theologians. Everyone who studies this material knows Abram is that seed. He is the son that's going to change everything after Genesis 11. But it's also the case 
that Joseph is featured in the Toledah section of Jacob. And why? For the very same reason. Abraham, Abraham is separated from his brethren. Do you remember? He is called upon to leave his family. But in Abram's case, he is separated from his brethren in the context of a promise. You know, as the message comes to Abraham, God says, separate from your brethren, and God is telling him to do it, and with it is a promise of blessing. Joseph is separated from his brethren as well, but in the context of persecution. He is reinvigorating the dream, but it's not so easy any longer. It's harder to get the thing going again. Abram is given a starry-eyed vision toward the building of a family. Remember God tells him, look at the stars in the sky and your generations will be like the number of the stars of the sky. He's given a starry-eyed vision toward the production of his family. Joseph is given a starry-eyed vision from God over this very family. In other words, something isn't working out with this family because now the one who has the vision renewed says to his brothers, effectively from the dream, the sun, the moon, and the stars are going to do obeisance to me. And until the sun, moon, and stars understand who Joseph is and the life that he is living, they're not going to be a part of God's project. So Joseph has a starry-eyed vision as well, but you see the strain that is evident in this parallelism. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Abram is a son that's chosen out of idolatry and separated from his brethren in the Toledo section. Joseph gets the focus, and he's chosen, but out of the family. That's supposed to be the family that's growing and multiplying, as God said it would. Abram is separated from his brethren with a wonderful promise in front of him. Joseph is separated from his brethren as a consequence of the persecution of the very family that is supposed to be living this vision that is supposed to be building God's kingdom. Abram, or Abraham, is called to be a blessing to the nations. Joseph is silenced from being a blessing to his brethren. God says to Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. I'm giving you this revelation. And the family should now begin. Let's have Isaac, let's have Jacob. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. Joseph comes to his brethren and he says, through dream, the Lord shows me that my sheave, my sheave of wheat, somehow the Lord's going to use me to bless the nations ultimately, as will come to pass in Joseph's life. And Joseph is sharing this dream, and his brethren silence him and put him into a pit. There's no possible way that your life is going to be used to be a blessing to others unless we're on top, they say. We would otherwise be jealous of what God would do through you. We're not going to cooperate and work with you. You can't be the son through whom God changes things. There's no possible way. We're going to silence your vision so that you can't be a blessing to the nations. Well, of course, when God has a calling on someone, then that will come to pass. All things will work ultimately together for the good. 
Abram is called the exalted father. Because of God's work with Abram, his name, Avram, is father of exaltation, father of being lifted up. Av, father, and Ram means to raise. Exalted father. Joseph is the ejected brother, nearly executed. But he becomes a theater of the nations, just as Abram was called to be a blessing to all the nations. Abram faces famine in Canaan. Joseph faces famine in Egypt. Abram runs to Egypt in the context of facing this famine. Joseph rules in Egypt. Those two last observations are the pivotal two observations with which we will recommence our study, the Lord willing, next time as we bring this all forward. But you see with me there are very, very real, real parallels between Abram's life and Joseph's life. Understanding how they fit together. I've given you many hints in what I've just shared with you. But understanding how this all fits together, and particularly as it relates to the famine that they both face, and where their position is, and how their response to this famine plays out, will be the next critical piece in understanding why Joseph has to become the son that changes everything. Because we may even see some weaknesses in Abram's own life that we need to be aware of so that we don't make the same mistakes. Because though we are called to walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, it may be that he himself did not always walk up to the faith that he did embrace in most respects very well, but he didn't necessarily always live up to it. And therefore, it was left to another man to live faithfully in a time of famine. Well, the Lord willing, we'll return to these studies next Sunday and we'll continue to unfold what I'm leaving somewhat looming in the air at the conclusion of this study. May the Lord bless the word to your hearts. Would you kindly stand with me as we worship our God before we close?